This is In the Studio with Michael Card. Welcome to this week's program. I'm Wayne Shepherd, And Michael, we can't say that we're live exactly, I guess. We're, well, we're not strictly speaking live, but we are alive. I, I feel pretty good today. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> well, we have a most interesting program in store for our listeners. We have friends who are going to drop by today. Yes. Steve Green is oh, yeah. going to come to the studio, a neighbor of yours. Yes, and a good friend. Good yeah. friend. And Gary Witherall will be with us. If you don't know that name, stay tuned. You'll want to get to know Gary. Yeah, Gary uh, is, a, is a brother that you and I met together when we were in Budapest at a missionary conference, and mm-hmm. he's going to share his story with us. Also, I'd like to mention that we have a website. Now, I mentioned that sometimes halfway through or at the end of the program, but mm-hmm. I'd like to mention it up front because maybe you missed last week's program, want to go back and listen again. It's right there on the web. Yeah, and the web is becoming so important uh, to this ministry because we can connect with listeners uh, so easily through it and uh, and hear back from them and and, uh, and hopefully serve their needs with it. So. And lots of people do come Come to your website, yeah. michaelcard.com, and I hope that uh, some of our listeners today will try that out, michaelcard.com. Well, as we start today, we're going to do something just a bit different. We're going to run a tape of one of your lectures mm-hmm. recently, Michael. Now, how did this come about? Well, I was up at Trinity. Uh, in, in 22 years of touring, I'd never been to Trinity and uh, was so happy to finally, whatever lapse in good judgment they had that <laughs> led to me being asked, uh, I was so glad to be there and, and had a wonderful time there with uh, the students. And, and professors there that I've admired for a long time. So, I remember talking to you the day after. You were oh, so excited about the interaction time. Oh, I had questions on the, the project I'm, I'm working on now on laments, and I had professors who gave me a whole afternoon and let me ask some questions. So I was gr- glad to be there. Well, we are about to hear what happened that day. Actually, you called this talk the failure of Jesus. Now, that's pretty provocative. Well, obviously, I'm trying to be, uh, I'm trying to hook people into the, uh, into the message of this talk. But uh, yeah, I want to uh, we'll focus on a very self-evident uh, fact in the Gospels, and that is that everyone who ever got close to Jesus uh, discovered that he failed to meet their expectations. And I think that's uh, an experience that those of us who get close to him today uh, are going to have. So I think we need to be ready for it. Uh, we want to hear this teaching yeah. now. Let's, uh, let's go to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the Staley Lectureship Series. Here's Michael Card. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that anybody who ever got close to Jesus really close to Jesus, was disappointed. Everyone. So let's run the list real quickly. Um, Start with the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's easy. He failed to meet their expectations, didn't he? They were looking for a great messianic uh, uh, leader. They were looking for someone who would come and kill the Romans. Never did they expect that they would get someone who would die for the Romans. That didn't figure. All of those suffering servant of the Lord passages... Isaiah, uh, or, uh, Psalm 22, uh, all those kinds of passages that spoke of the Messiah suffering, they applied to themselves. They were the suffering servants of the Lord. And so when Jesus appeared in the form that he did appear in, so inadequate, so weak, especially when he was, as Paul says, crucified in weakness, uh, he failed to meet their expectations. He didn't fix anything. They were looking for someone who'd come and fix things. And I'm not so sure it it looked like to them that things had been fixed after Jesus had been there. How about his mother and brothers? That's a good one. If anybody should have been in touch with him, who he was, it should have been Mary and the brothers. But if you look closely at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, you'll see that at one point anyway, Mary had decided that Jesus was out of his mind. Um, if you look, especially in the Gospel of John, you'll see the ministry of Jesus completely inundated with people all the time. There's this ever-present crowd, and they, they want to touch him. They, they all believe, if I'll just touch him, I'll be healed. Or if, I'm, if I hang out in this crowd long enough, there'll be a picnic on a green lawn, as at least twice there was. Um, they're wanting Jesus for the wrong reason. And there's this strange dynamic in Mark of Jesus trying to get away from these people so that he can do what he's really called to do, which is tell people the good news of the kingdom. Well, they're so covered up with people. Uh, In fact, there's a a passage that we may look at sometime, if we have any extra time here, called the cycle of discipleship that begins and ends with Jesus and the disciples being so busy that they can't even eat. They don't even have time to eat between between chapters 3 and chapters 6 in Mark. Well... Mary decides there's something's wrong with him. You know, any good Jewish mother knows that you know he's got to eat. This boy has to eat. 
So they come and they decide to take him away from the presence of the crowd before you know, something worse happens. And I wonder, and this is just speculation, and I'll always warn you when I'm speculating because I'm a great speculator, but I just wonder in what ways Jesus failed to meet their expectation, the oldest son of the family who, would, who should have provided for them, who should have continued in his uh, work as a carpenter uh, after jo- Joseph's apparent death. Apparently Joseph died when Jesus was young. And now he's hit the sawdust trail, and you just wonder if that's behind this incident. And the, the passage in John 7 where Jesus' brothers taunt him, you know that passage? No one who wants to become a public figure acts the way you do. Go to Jerusalem. Let everybody see you, see? Uh, and John gives us that little parathetical statement that says, because even his own brothers didn't believe in him. So he failed to meet the expectations of certainly of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I believe he failed to meet the expectations of his mother. Let's, let's go it this way. Of, of all the people who shouldn't have been offended, who's the best candidate? And I've got one in mind. Of course, I'm not going to ask a question I don't have an answer to. Who, um, who recognized the dignity of Jesus when he was still in his mother's womb? Leapt in his mother's womb. Who first called Jesus the Lamb of God? Who heard the voice of God declaring as much? Who saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove? It was another blood relative of Jesus. It was John the Baptist. Uh, If Jesus shouldn't have failed someone's expectations, I think John is a great, great candidate. But there's an amazing passage in Matthew 11 where I think you see John's disappointment in Jesus Uh, He also, I think like the disciples, like everyone else who was close to Jesus, expected someone who would come and give them at least some relief, but most who would become a glorious king. James and John want thrones. They fully expect that they're going to have them. John the Baptist is in prison not for doing something wrong, but for doing something right. He's been preaching against Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, and for that he goes to prison. In verse 3 of chapter 11, I I believe it's the most staggering question in the New Testament. From the voice of the one who leapt in his mother's womb, from the voice of the one who baptized Jesus and saw the the Spirit descend and and heard the voice of God, from from that individual comes the question, "Are, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Have you not ever been floored by that passage? Of all people, John the Baptist... But I think Jesus has failed, clearly. Jesus has failed. Uh, Certainly, you don't go to prison for doing what's right. And a person with the sort of power that Jesus obviously had should have come and sprung him from prison. I mean, it happens in Acts, doesn't it? So John stumbled. Jesus failed to meet his expectation. Interesting, so like Jesus, though, he sends back a little Baroka, a little blessing to John through his disciples. He says, blessed is he who doesn't stumble because of me. Blessed is he who, who isn't offended, who isn't disappointed that I've seemingly failed to meet his expectations. And I want to read a passage from uh, John 6 that I think is a wonderful example of this failure that I'm talking about. It's, it's one of uh, uh, John's examples. You know, 92% of the, of the Gospel of John's unique John leaves things out and then substitutes things. One of the most interesting studies of the Gospel of John is to study what he leaves out. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, leaves out birth narratives, instead he gives us incarnation. Leaves out the second temple cleansing, but gives us the first temple cleansing. Uh, Leaves out the first miraculous catch of fish, but gives us the second miraculous catch of fish. Leaves out the parables, not a single parable in John, but gives us Jesus' life as a parable. Great book, John. Highly, 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 highly recommended to you. And what I'm looking at here is one of those wonderful substitutions. In the synoptics, you have Peter's confession, right, at Caesarea Philippi. The, the disciples, they venture into enemy territory, a very pagan area, Caesarea Philippi. And, and it's in that context that Jesus, you know, who do men say that I am? And they come back with this sort of lame list of who people think he is. And then he, he says, well, what about you? Who do you say I am? And I love the fact that Peter didn't say, didn't say, we say you are, blah, blah, blah. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're him. 
That's the, that's the Caesarea Philippi confession that leads on to the transfiguration. I mean, it's a great, great moment uh, in, uh, in Peter's life. Great context, I think. Like I said, they're in enemy territory. And this is a, you know, good for Peter. You know, he, get, he got 10 points for that one. But John leaves that out. He gives us another confession of Peter in, in 6 with completely different context. And that's why I love this confession. I call it loyal despair. And let me read it to you. After they found him, I'm starting in verse 25. After they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Of course, he doesn't answer their question. He never does. Jesus answered them, Amen, amen, I say to you. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves until you were full. Do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that lasts forever, which the Son of Man will give you. He is the one the Father has sealed to be sacrificed. They said to him, What must we do so that we may work the works of God? This is the work of God, Jesus answered. Believe. Believe in the one he sent. Then they said, what sign will you perform then so that we may believe in you? And what you need to know is that people who ask for signs never believe them when they come. People who ask for signs in the, in the New Testament never believe them when they come. And here's their hint. See, they just had the feeding of the 5,000, so they're on the other side of the lake, and uh, this is what they want Jesus to do for them. It's kind of a hint, hint. Our forefathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus just told them that uh, the work was to believe, but then they want to see a work. It's kind of, they've sort of misunderstood him as they always did, always do, as we still do misunderstand him. Jesus said, Amen, Amen, I say to you. It wasn't Moses who gave you the true bread from heaven, but my Father. Only he can give you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the one who has come down from heaven to give life to the world. Lord, they said, from now on give us this bread. Motif of misunderstanding. It's just like the woman at the well saying, okay, give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. It's a wonderful literary motif in John. Every, every time Jesus says something deeply significant, the response of the people indicates that they have no clue. They don't, they don't misunderstand it a little bit. They misunderstand it this much, you know. You must be born again. Does a man enter his mother's womb a second time to be born? See? <laughs> Look for it in John. Anytime he says something significant, they completely miss it. And it, this device sets Jesus off in a very lonely way. It sort of, it's a cumulative thing in John. He's, he's the misunderstood Messiah. Whenever he says something significant, they miss it. And they certainly miss it here. Because he's talking about himself, obviously. And so they're asking for what they don't know, which also happens a lot in the Bible. So from now on, give us this bread to eat. And then he floors them. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me never gets hungry, and whoever believes in me will never get thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and you don't believe. They're asking for a miracle. He is the miracle. He is the bread that's come down from heaven. His presence among them, the incarnation, is the miracle. See? All that the Father gives to me will come, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. It's a good thing he said that, because he's about to drive a bunch of them away. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. This is the will of the one who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he's given to me, but on the last day raise them up. This is the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in Him may have eternal life, and on the last day I will raise them up. The Jews began to murmur about Him because He said He was the bread that comes down from heaven. And this is incidentally the same word that's used in the Septuagint for the children of Israel murmuring in the wilderness. They said, isn't this the man? Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he say he came down from heaven? And so the scandal, the disappointment begins to build. And Jesus says, stop murmuring among yourselves. No one has the power to come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And on the last day, I'll raise them up. That's the third time he said that. 
In the prophets it is written, they shall all become the ones taught by God. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one from God. He has seen the Father. Amen. Amen. I say to you, the one who believes has life eternal. I'm the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. Here's the bread which has come down from heaven that a person may eat and not die. I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, bread, they will live into the age. And the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. They were murmuring before, now they start arguing. The Jews began arguing with each other. How does he have the power to give us his flesh to eat? Now these are people who don't even eat pork. Okay, this sounds like cannibalism. This is, I mean, people are going, ugh, gross. Okay, and this is the perfect place for Jesus to explain himself. Right, perfect place to explain himself. Does he? No. Does he ever explain himself? Not really. Jesus said, amen, amen, I say, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. And you can see these rabbis going, ugh, ugh, gross. The person who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has life eternal. And on the last day, I will raise them up. That's the fourth time he said that. Now, we've got 2,000 years of church history to cushion this blow. But you've got to know that these people were absolutely scandalized by this kind of language. And it's a good thing he said, I'm not going to lose anyone the Father gives me. Because he's, like I said, he's about to lose a bunch of them. Again, this would be a great place to say, you know, oh, well, it was just a metaphor. Let me explain the whole, you know, Lord's Supper business to you, that sort of thing. Would have been a great place. But what does he say? Just at the point when some of the, the smarter, you know, Joseph of Arimathea is going, you know, this, he must be speaking figuratively. We've got to give this guy a break. We've got to cut him some slack here. Just at that point, Jesus says, verse 55, my flesh is real food. And my blood is real drink. The one who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood stays in me and I in them. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Whoever feeds on this bread, which came out of heaven, will live into the age and not die like the fathers who ate the manna. He said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. This is hometown for Jesus. It's 84 feet from Peter's house, one door down. From the synagogue is where Peter lives and Jesus lives with him. This isn't Caesarea Philippi. He's in the midst of his sort of the humdrum of his hometown when he says these things. And here it comes, verse 60. Many of his disciples who heard this said, this is a hard word. Who has the power to hear it? Jesus knew inwardly that his disciples were murmuring about this. And he said, does this cause you to stumble? If you see the Son of Man going up into heaven where he was at first, what will you do then? It's the Spirit. This is the closest thing to an explanation you're going to get, so listen real close. It's the Spirit that makes things alive. The flesh does not count for anything. The words I speak to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe. For from the beginning Jesus knew who did not believe and who would betray him. What an incredible burden that must have been to bear. For him. This is why I told you that no one has the power to come to me unless it's been given to them by the Father. How could they? How could you come to Jesus unless you've been given the power to do so? From then on, many of his disciples went back home and no longer walked with him. And here's the moment I was read all that to get to this moment. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away too, do you? His question expects the answer no. And here it is. Lord, Simon Peter answered, he always answers for the twelve. To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now that was not a, a teeth-clenched Caesarea Philippi type confession. The context of this passage in John is really failure, is despair. I think implicit in Peter's statement is, if there was someplace else to go, we'd go. 
But the real truth is, and the truth that I want you to see this morning, is that in spite of what seemed to be failed expectations, you've got no place else to go. And it's one thing to say it in pagan territory in Caesarea Philippi, but it's another thing to say it where you're comfortable here and safe here. The true test of discipleship is not following Jesus when the crowd is along for the ride, but when no one else sees any sense in following him at all. When all the evidence points not to his unseen glory, but to his apparent failure. A sign shall be given, a virgin will conceive. A human baby bearing undiminished deity. The glory of the nations, a light for all to see. And hope for all who will embrace his warm reality. Sing if you know it. from one of Michael's concerts, one of our radio concerts, actually, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Emmanuel. John Ketching's playing the cello there, Michael. Yeah, that was a great night. (laughs) Hey, before we get to the halfway point of today's program, we have just enough time to answer one of our listener emails. I've got a stack of them here, actually. Mm -hmm. Joe Carlson, our producer, provides these to us. Very interesting interesting to read what listeners uh, want to ask you about. Yeah, and this particular email that we're looking at, uh, we're going to look at a question on the parables, but uh, the brother's name is Andrew. He says, uh, this teaching has really encouraged me to dig deeper to to get the bigger picture and to let get this the tea bag of truth stay longer in the water of my meditations now there's a guy that understands parables yeah i like that line well here's his question he says between jesus telling the parable of the soils and the sower and his explanation of it he says in mark 4:13 
But if you can't understand this story, how will you understand all the others I'm going to tell? Mm. And Andrew's asking, what does that mean? Is this mm. some key to understanding all the other parables? Yeah, a lot of people refer to the, uh, the parable of the sower as the queen of the parables, mm. uh, because Jesus, this is, he doesn't say this about any of the other parables. And I think the first thing you've got to realize when you when you look at sayings of Jesus, most especially parables, uh, you've got to realize that you don't just squeeze them dry and, and this is the final and conclusive answer to what Jesus said and then we move on. So um, my tendency when, when I look at a question like this is to say, well, you know, let's let's get it whatever, whatever layer of meaning we can and then uh, as time goes on, we'll come back to it and the Lord will so, show us something new. Isn't that just the way it works? Yeah, which, which is to say, Andrew, I'm not going to have the final <laughs> conclusive answer. But I think a couple of things uh, stand out to me. First of all, the parable is about the Word and uh, and the way the Word functions and works. And uh, I think Jesus is saying, if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand any of my parables because his parables, you know, are, are the source of the Word, are, are you know, the, one of the most creative expressions of the Word. But the other, uh, the other idea is, you know, if you don't understand the basic function of the way a parable works, which is uh, a story that discloses sort of a deeper truth, if you can't understand this, you're not going to be able to understand any of the parables. So uh, this is one of the examples when Jesus takes the disciples aside and it explains to them what this parable means. This, this is part of his teaching style, isn't it? It is. And it's part of this early section of Mark where he is intensively discipling the disciples hmm. and preparing to send them out on mission. And so interesting, he doesn't explain it to the crowd, but he takes the disciples aside and says, okay, the seed is the word and the soil is this and that. So it is key. It is key. And uh, if, if they're not able to understand the way the word of God works and comes to fruition, and also if they don't understand the, the nature of the way a parable works, that is that uh, a, a spiritual truth is revealed uh, in a very often very mundane thing like sowing seed, they're not going to be able to understand any of the parables. Well, Andrew, thank you for your question. Now, for anyone who would like to send a Bible question to Michael, the email address is in the studio at michaelcard.com. And once your question is used on the air, we will be happy to send you a Bible. The New Living Translation of the Scriptures will be coming your way. And Michael, next week, we'll come back to this lectureship series from Trinity. And we're going to finish up this idea of uh, looking at the failure of Jesus. Well, there's much more to look forward to next week, but there's also more today. We're planning on talking with Steve Green and Gary Witherall after this break on the Moody Broadcasting Network. Michael, every time we're together, it seems like you're you're telling me of another book that I need to be reading. You read a lot, don't you? Well, I, I like to read. I, I don't have as much time as I used to, but that's what really feeds me. It's not listening to music so much that feeds me as, as reading. Hmm. Well, we're joined also by our friend Steve Green here, who also is a lover of books. And Michael's given me many books. Uh, <laughs> Steve's given me many books. That's one of the th- fun things we do. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful fellowship-building thing to read a book together. Mm. That's a great thing to share. Well, Steve, let's ask you, what are you reading right now? That uh, Well, I'm, that... I'm rereading uh, Chesterton's Orthodoxy. and um, G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton. And, you know, he wrote the book uh, really as a response uh, to agnostics. And it's a description of the Apostles' Creed, which is hard to find in there, but he starts with the fact Everything he learned about Christianity, he learned in the nursery. And he mm. talks about nursery rhymes and mm. principles of nursery rhymes. And I mean, you know, his his thinking is, is uh, brilliant. And um, I've gotten a lot of good little quotes out of it and, <laughs> and stimulated my own thinking. Mm. Well, what else? Um, let's see. Um, just finished the, a trilogy, uh, which is Thomas Watson's trilogy. And, and I don't think he calls it a trilogy, but it's a Ten Commandments. Uh, body of divinity, and uh, the last one is is the Lord's Prayer, and um, it's a collection of sermons. All three books are a collection of sermons on the shorter catechism, mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of meaty stuff. And then wow. you know a, a prayer book I've really uh, enjoyed and kept uh, with me all the time is the Valley of Vision, mm-hmm. a collection of Puritan Puritans, yeah, prayers. Got, yeah, Scotty and, Smith gave me that book, and you know. Um, just as heart preparation before concerts, mm-hmm. um, there's times when I'm not sure what to pray. And, of course, we know that that's true, that Spirit has to kind of give us uh, groans and prayers. But in reading some of these prayers, 
um, it reminds me of things I hadn't even thought of and gives utterance to some repentance that I hadn't I hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, just really good good prayers. Mm. It's not necessarily light reading, but that's okay. We need to we need to be stretched. We mm. need to grow. Um, sure. Let me ask both of you. You both dig into some pretty heavy things at times. I mean, what is the purpose? Is it to to grow in knowledge? Is it to uh, to understand, to put it into action. What? Why do you read? Well, you read a person like Chesterton, and it's basically you're 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 meeting up with someone who's farther down the road, so mm-hmm. much farther down the road than you are, and it's a, it's kind of like being mentored. It's not exactly the same thing, but you can definitely think their thoughts after them. That's the amazing thing about a book. Mm-hmm. And what's great too is, you know, we live in the, of course the age of of television, and it's all images, and it goes by so quickly. In a book, um, the author has to really guard his um, writing because he knows that someone's going to read it and then go back and reread it and compare it with something he said earlier, mm-hmm. and you have to really make your arguments airtight. It's, mm-hmm. it's a rational form of communication. And um, we need that. Mm-hmm. You know, deep ideas can't be communicated too hurriedly. And mm-hmm. uh, I love to... To, I work with a book. I was, I, I was going to ask you that next. What What do you do? Wrestle see? with it and write in it and underline yeah. it and make notes. And I know Mike does the same thing. He's given yeah. me some books that he's, um, you the, know, the annotated version. Huh? <laughs> well, no, that he's written all over. And I try to read his notes and I can't read his writing. And I wish I could because I want to see what well, he was thinking. Well, Bill Lane taught us to do that. He said you interact in the margins. Yeah. And then years later, you can pull that book off the shelf. You read your notes and you have it back. It's, yep. it's a great thing to do. Yeah. Sounds like you guys take time with the books that you read. You don't rush through them. I mean, um, the, the time, I would imagine, for both of you comes in short bursts, right? Or do you have long, lengthy opportunities? Well, because we travel, you yeah. know, sometimes, um, I mean, I'll sit in the back of the bus, and we have hours of, of okay. road. All right. And it's a good thing that I don't get nauseous mm-hmm. reading in a moving vehicle. My mm-hmm. wife can't. Huh. I can sit back there and bounce around and read and be, and be yeah. perfectly happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good for you. So we do that. And, and, uh, and then, you know, we should also say... Um, that the main intake um, is God's Word. Yeah. And I'm trying to read through the Bible every year. And um, and I just read through the book of Leviticus in one sitting. I think that's the best way to do Leviticus. <laughs> <Yeah>. it's, like, <laughs> it's like getting a shot. I, I, told my wife, I told my wife the day before I did, I said, honey, tomorrow I need to read Leviticus. Uh-huh. I said, I kind of feel like it's time out. <laughs> but it's not. There's richness and there's a oh. picture of Christ and, of course. And, oh, yeah. Are you, do you find yourself reading more than one book at a time? I have books scattered yeah, everywhere. Do you? Yeah. yeah, and and it's funny. My wife has this. If she starts a book, even if she absolutely hates it, she's going to finish it. Really? And I'm, if they don't get me in the first couple of chapters, they're out of there. You know. I have a stack by my bed, and I have a little, you know, halogen reading lamp yeah. that hooks onto the bedpost that my wife can go to sleep. sleep. Yeah, same and here. I can flip it on and read to my heart's content. And yeah. So I have books everywhere. You both read books on theology. How about biographies and that sort of thing, Michael? Um, has done uh, uh, yeah some um, I don't know if there's any one category that it falls into mm-hmm. I mean it's all going to be biblical but um, I just finished Ken Geyer's book on uh, Michelangelo and the Pieta mm-hmm. and it was amazing now why uh, yeah. why did you pick Ken's book well up he gave it? it to me okay, okay. Uh, he, he taught at a, a creativity seminar that I did out in Colorado Springs but I've loved his book since Windows of the Soul which I think is one of the best mm-hmm. devotional yes, books that was ever that. written mm-hmm. uh, but it's he, what he does he, he looks at the way Michelangelo created the Pieta and, and takes that as a parable for the way God shapes us mm-hmm. and it, it's just a beautiful <clears throat> beautiful book it's a little 90 100 page mm-hmm. book you can read it in you know one sitting yeah, I know that we've. I mean, I read the Count of Monte Cristo. Actually, I've I've done a lot of reading. That is my son's required reading for school. That's good. <laughs> okay. All right, because he doesn't keep like up to with read, him, don't you? Oh, he doesn't like to read, and so I'll help him by yeah. reading his book and then helping you know give him a short condensed. Wow, version what of a it. great dad! That's <laughs> so the classics you enjoy reading. Uh huh. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So a well-rounded reading program, I guess. It would sound, sound like a teacher here, don't we? <laughs> and you know what's great is, is, again, that's part of community. I mean, Michael has given me many books. That The book by Ken Geyer, Winters of the Soul, he gave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, books by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's given mm-hmm. me. And, you know, when someone gives you a book, if Michael gives me a book, um, it's important enough. If it's important enough for him to give it to me, and it's something that's meant something to him, I want to find out what mm-hmm. it was that meant something mm-hmm. to Michael. So I'll read it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's the importance of sharing books with each other. Is yeah. it's, a, it's a gift. Yeah. Look, this has inspired me and stretched me. 
uh, here, you read it. I yeah. want to give this to you. Yeah. I think you've done that for us as listeners right now. You've told us what's important to you, and I think some of our listeners will pick up that challenge yeah. and want to read some of well, these things. Well, you talked a little bit about uh, an idea you had for a website on uh, books. Just talk about that. Um, well, I have the domain. Uh-huh. I just haven't done anything with it. It's been, a, a you know, obviously a, a busy season. But um, it's called what those who lead read.com. Oh, that's and, cool. and that was the idea is to just uh, you know send out a questionnaire to uh-huh. those who are in leadership and say what are the last 5 books that you read. And um, that's a great idea. You know, it's just interesting to know what what people are reading yeah. that that shapes their thinking and that that inspires them and um, so I, I need to do something with it. I just haven't yet. That's a great idea. I'd encourage you to do that. That's a great idea. There's nothing there yeah. yet. No. But someday. Don't, don't, yeah, there's nothing there <laughs> yet. People are typing <laughs> it in. <laughs> well, Steve, thanks for being part of our book club here oh, today. I'm glad appreciate to. Thank it. you. Living stones, living stones, we are holy living stones, built upon the firm foundation that is CDs is from a fragile stone. Mm-hmm. It's called Living Stones. Michael, thank you. In the studio here today with Michael Card. And it's amazing when you look back over the course of even just the past few months, all the people that God has brought into our life. Yeah, it is amazing. And, and our next next brother, uh, you and I met together. Mm-hmm. And well, I met him for the first time in Budapest. And this uh, this man gets up and starts sharing. And, and uh, I heard something that I hadn't heard in a long time. Uh, and it was Gary Witherall. And he's on the phone. Hey, Gary. Hi. How you doing, man? Good, man. Good. Gary is the husband of Bonnie Witherall, who was slain. I mean, Bonnie was shot to death in Lebanon oh, back in November of 2002, right, Gary? Uh, yeah, six months ago. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, what, what you heard from Gary there at Budapest when we were all together was passion. Yeah, and, um, and what it means to really follow Jesus. And uh, and I was I was grateful, and we uh, hooked up and just have been spending time together ever since on the road and um, and that sort of thing. So it's it's good to have you, Gary. Gary, would you start? I would love for our listeners to some may be familiar with you and and Bonnie and your ministry at that time, and others may not. I'd love for you just to tell us a little bit of what you two were doing in Lebanon. Bonnie and I, after graduating from Moody, uh, moved out to Portland, Oregon. We looked at different mission fields, and God led us to the Middle East. Uh, and clearly down to Lebanon. Uh, in Lebanon, we moved to the city of Sidon, which is right through the Bible, and uh, it's still the same place there today. Um, today, currently, there's a very large Palestinian refugee camp, um, somewhere in the region, 150,000. That's the official figure. And as we began to learn Arabic and our ministries were growing, Bonnie uh, uh, started to manage um, a prenatal clinic that helped specifically the women of that camp um, I was more involved in uh, teaching and being involved in various forms of evangelism um, around the country. And really living amongst the community, learning. I mean, it was all the time about learning and listening and growing. And, uh, but that's our ministry. And, and you really, and Bonnie loved being there, right? Absolutely. And really more than that is that people loved us being there. I had uh, more Muslim friends than Christian friends. Um, and 
would sit and have all kinds of discussions and debates. I mean, really, uh, it was just a wonderful place to visit. And in fact, people occasionally came out to visit us, and we'd take them out to the coffee shops. And um, you know, it's a really a warm place uh, to live. Yeah, I think I've learned more about Islam and the Muslim world from Gary than anyone else. And it was always in the context, I love Muslims, I love the people. And, and talk about the, the, the contest about who can bless each other the most. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of actually, uh, not, you only find it in the uh, in Middle East, but also in places like India. Uh, but this, uh, in an Arab language, is a be- very beautiful language, very colorful, and they will... Uh, say, you know, God bless your hands, and it'll be God bless your family. And, you know, and of course, in the older Arabic, you know, it'll be like, you know, may you have a thousand camels, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's all really about loving and blessing each other. They're very kind people and, and very soft. If you go to the house, you know, everything will stop, and they will spend all day with you. Um, uh, it's really, in fact, you can never turn somebody away when they knock on your door. It's, it's a great shame to do that on mm. On a person's life, so just uh, the images that we often see uh, on television, or the images we might have, and certain names uh, give us ideas, but they're just wrong ideas. Really, uh, they are very kind and very gentle people. You know? Gary, that's very helpful because uh, you know, as Americans, that we tend to stereotype everyone. And uh, you're helping us understand uh, what it means to befriend someone who's different than we are, and yet remain faithful to Jesus in the process. I mean, it's, I think one very, very important issue is not to to see people as a people group uh, and and call them by that title. You know, we don't want to say, uh, you know, Muslims or Arabs. We want to say people. You know, hmm. uh, and when we start seeing people like that, then we start to we are able to love them. You know. Well, Gary, where, where are you now? What's going on in your life now? Um, I've been uh, traveling in the last couple of weeks. I've been uh, in. Um, Portland, Oregon, uh, took some meetings there, and then down in San Diego. Um, last Sunday, I was able to share in a, a Lebanese church in uh, L.A., hmm. uh, and that was really moving. I mean, I uh, they um, they was they are so uh, they they really hurt for me, and when they're encouraged that I have faith in God, that God's given me really has given me the grace and strength to uh, to get through this more than get through this to to uh, say, you know, it's Jesus is still in control even through the greatest tragedy of my life. Yeah. And uh, and this is obviously a great encouragement to believers. You know. mm. Well, Gary, uh, as Michael said, we know you and we know that you don't uh, just jump into these things lightly, but you feel perhaps that God has a purpose in you putting this story into a book, and that's what you're working on now. Um, and you've gone over the story many times, but for our listeners, would you just tell us again, I mean, you and Bonnie have been married such a short time. You were young uh, missionaries there serving Christ in that in that wonderful place, and then suddenly uh, she's gone. I very much really loved my wife. I mean, she was everything to me. It was She was a complete gift from God. Um, and um, without going any further into that, um, really, uh, I've learned a lot of lessons. I've learned a lot of lessons in life through failure and sin and struggle. Um, you know, I'm not a walking success. Uh, but I am a walking example of the grace of God, you know. Yeah. Uh, we, The day Bonnie was killed, um, obviously, I don't really want to go into it too much today. No, but, we yeah, understand. We, That's yeah, fine. we don't want you to. But, I mean, basically, uh, I, I had a rush over to the clinic. Um, it was my day off, and I got a phone call. It was a very hysterical phone call. Taxi driver um, was going really slowly through all the traffic, uh, if you can imagine, like a very hot, dusty day and uh, lots of cars and uh, people running around. It's a slow taxi. And I was finally made it over, and the guy stopped off at a gas station about a quarter of a mile before um, the clinic, and I had to run off and sprint the last part, and I got to the to the clinic. Und- uh, the, the church is underneath the clinic, and above that is the mission base. Um, I ran um, over, and there's an ambulance out there. It was a soldier outside. It was all very strange. I was thinking, what in the world's going on? I ran inside. And upstairs, and there is a couple of soldiers, and I look through the door into the clinic, and I see Bonnie's legs just on the ground, and I'm thinking, what in the world's gone wrong? And I know last summer she had miscarried, and I'm thinking, you know, but of course, there's why there's soldiers there, nobody would tell me. It was a very, a lot of panic and stress, and um, 
the time uh, they threw me into the next room, I just uh, um, was told Bonnie was being shot dead, and uh, uh, it's a very, very painful experience. Um, but one thing, um, the Lord spoke to me at that point um, uh, at, and said, Gary, a seed's been planted in your heart, and it's going to go from anger to hatred or from forgiveness to love, and you've got to choose. And it's kind of <laughs> one of those moments in life, you know, where time stops and um really you really have to say well god you better be in control now man because this is it you know what i mean this is the, this is all i've got to give there's nothing else this is the best i can give you know I mean, my tears and my grief and my body shaking and shock and everything and i just like cried out lord i forgive whoever done this um, i knew this isn't just like sure i forgive somebody i mean this is um this is the very person i just love to be with and she's She's gone. No, yeah, yeah. Gary, that was six months ago. Have you wavered in that forgiveness at all? Not even for a moment. It's, it's, and I can't just tell you that in my strength. I can tell you that God's grace has been on my life. Yeah. It just gives me the ability to have peace. And as God hears me today, you know, it's, an, it's a walking miracle. And, and, and therefore, my proclamation to whoever is listening today is that Jesus does reign and he does live and there is meaning uh Jesus is still in control even when great tragedy occurs, you know? Well, Gary, it's it's obvious from our, the time we spent together that uh, the Lord's hand is on you. He's sustaining you, but he's also using you in a remarkable way. I'm, 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 I'm thankful that, uh, that Bonnie's sacrifice is, is uh, blossoming, is the only word I can think of, mm-hmm. into uh, uh, a very powerful ministry. And... Uh, Again, I mean, we stand with you right. uh, in in that loss, but we celebrate what God has done, and I'm I'm proud that uh, I can call you my friend. Yeah, Gary. Not long ago, Mike and I talked with a friend who has uh, now been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and when the discussion turned to the question of why, that w- really wasn't a question he was asking. He said the question, the better question, is to what end. And I think of that question now when you think of Bonnie's death. I mean, now that, I mean, only six months has gone by, but are you beginning to see some of the answers, perhaps a glimpse at least of a little bit of, of, of God's moving and working here? You know, I can just tell you that our lives, the answers were given to us before Bonnie was killed, mm-hmm. before I was killed, because we were prepared to be killed, because the power is in the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ changes life, the the. The answers were given to us in the last few years in our preparation, not after. And the day Bonnie died, you know, it was Bonnie's privilege. I mean, it should have been me that was killed. Uh, I'm the one out there sharing about Jesus. There's no question about trying to find reconciliation in my mind. It's quite simple that we lay down our lives. We are either physical or we are living sacrifice. That's what Christ said, right? We Mm -hmm. we We are now crucified with Christ. And in that sense, uh, we've already died, and it's Christ that lives in us, and so it's about Jesus and about what He wants to do in us. So I don't find I need to find reconciliation. I don't need to find any secret answers. It's quite simple. You know, the gospel is worth dying for. So I know I'm trying to make a trickery answer out of you your thing. No, that's fine. We we know you're a straight-up kind of guy, Gary, yeah. and that's what we love about you. I mean, that, well, otherwise, there's no way I'd go to the Middle East, you know? I mean, yeah. like, are you crazy? I'd just simply stay home here in America and make my money. But it's quite simple. I believe people are going to hell without Jesus. Yeah. You know? And do we really believe that? Do we really believe in the gospel that it's the power of salvation for whoever believes? Or are we just Sunday Christians that have all the right words and have our black Bibles, you know? And to settle that ahead of time, I mean, settle that question now before calamity comes to our sure. life. Well, and what I get from being with you, Gary, is quite simply, we got to get on with this thing. You know, we, we don't have the leisure and the luxury, like you say, to sit around with our black Bibles and, and to discuss the fine points of theology while people are, are literally dying and going to hell. Uh, we got to get on with this thing. And so to, to our listeners, I, w- I want to encourage everybody um, to think in terms of the, the reality of the gospel, uh, the, 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 uh, the fine points that uh, divide us and that we, uh, we throw away God's time arguing about and uh, allowing to divide ourselves. Uh, there are people all over the world who need to hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he means. And we just don't have time for this American nonsense anymore. And, you know, uh, Michael, let me tell you this. Arabs have the right to hear the message of Jesus 
and they have a right to believe in him because God gave them a mind. Mm. Just as anybody is listening to this radio today, they have a right to believe or not to believe. And uh, and so as we go out, and some people will say, why do people go there causing trouble telling them about Jesus? Well, let me tell you, the message of forgiveness, and I'm sure, Michael, you could stand there and say, hey, forgiveness is the best news in your life, right? Mm. I mean, the fact that Jesus has forgiven you from all the garbage of your life, the same with me. I can mm. stand here and you know, run off all the sins of my life, which I'm not going to do. But the, the good news is that we have been forgiven, and everybody on this planet has a right to know that truth. And the messengers go at great risk. But, I mean, it was told to us by Jesus that we go at great risk. You know? mm-hmm. Well, Gary Witherall, it has been great once again to touch base with you, even by telephone here today. Now, we talk a lot about community here in the studio with Michael, and uh, I think you would agree with me that you have found the community uh, of brothers and sisters, uh, even right here in Franklin, Tennessee, have you spent a little bit of time here to be a very supportive community for you yourself? I, I can only say thank you with my hidden tears. I'm not going to sit here and cry on the phone, but I'll tell you this. Uh, Michael has been a, a closer than a brother to me uh, in some, some of the deeper conversations we've had. I consider him really uh, privileged to know him and uh, and so, uh, and certainly, Pastor uh, Danny Denson and the other brothers in Empty Hands in Franklin, uh, I've, I'm really grateful. I really have had phone calls and encouragement from pastors around the country. And all I can just sit back and say, well, thank you, Jesus. Mm, that's the it's, way it's, it's supposed it's to work, isn't it? the Church of Christ, you know? Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing, uh, again, uh, out, of your, out of your sorrow, but out of the joy that Jesus has brought in. Uh, just God bless you, brother. Good man. Good man. And you have been listening to In the Studio with Michael Card. We hope that you'll get in touch with us and let us know what you think of this program. Contact us at inthestudio at michaelcard.com. And if you're new to this broadcast, why not stop by our website and learn more about this program and Michael's music and teaching ministry. We're easily found at www.michaelcard.com. When you explore our site, you'll find more about the community magazine, Michael's monthly email called From the Study, and much more. If you'd like to hear this complete program again, then visit the audio archives on our radio page. You'll also find more information how you can obtain a CD copy or transcript of today's studio session, all at michaelcard.com. Our program engineer is Kenny Ferris, our producer Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for being with us in the studio with Michael Card. In the Studio with Michael Card is a production of Community Broadcasting and the Moody Broadcasting Network.